Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Hello, and thank you for joining this first event in the Aspen UK Halili Foundation series, Designing for Diversity, How to Build a More Intercultural World. I'm Penny Richards. I'm the CEO of the Aspen Institute in the UK. And it really, really is a privilege for me to introduce these stimulating conversations with some of our country's top thinkers. We're very, very lucky to have these people on the screen. Before I introduce our guests, a quick word about the Aspen Institute in the UK. We are the latest in a global network of Aspen Institutes, which for over 70 years have inspired and empowered leaders internationally. Today, the Aspen Institute is recognized as one of the most influential leadership institutes in the world. And in the UK, we build on that tradition of holding constructive dialogues to support and inspire leaders across sectors and communities, helping them to transform themselves and their society. Our partnership, the Aspen UK partnership with the Halili Foundation fits so comfortably with our other work, as for more than 30 years, they've been a global leader in promoting interfaith and intercultural relations. And like Aspen UK, the Halili Foundation works with true diversity of people, leading scholars, activists, artists, and so many others from a variety of backgrounds to offer their perspectives on the significance of cultural diversity. So our conversation today is the start of a series looking at how we might improve effective intercultural exchanges where we live, where we work, where we're schooled, where we're informed, and how to fight for better societies. And today, with these extraordinary people on the screen, we look at our cities and communities in a conversation led by someone who is perfect in guiding this conversation. Before I introduce Paul, just quickly, if you want to ask questions, please do so in the Q&A tab. And Paul will we'll bring them together and ask them at the end of the, this, this conversation. But let me introduce Paul. He is a leading international advisor and practitioner in culture and creative industries. He launched the World Cities Culture Forum to share best practice on promoting culture within urban policy and cities all over the world. And as the co-founder and the chief exec of BOP Consulting, he guides policymakers, city leaders, and creative businesses worldwide in how to develop and then implement some remarkable cultural initiatives. So we really are very glad he's leading this conversation. Paul, thank you, and over to you. Thank you very much, Penny, uh, for that introduction, and uh, welcome, everybody. Um, to this discussion. I'm really delighted. Uh, um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm really uh, proud, actually, to be invited by um, Aspen UK and the Holy Foundation to host this uh, discussion and to sort of guide us uh, in an interesting uh, direction as we think about uh, the future of our cities, these great hubs uh, of, of diversity. Uh, I've got a great uh, panel of speakers here with us um, who I'm going to introduce very briefly and then I'm going to get straight uh, into questions. <clears throat> I've got uh, Shanaz Gulzar who's a very well-known artist and producer with a wide-ranging practice, works for Manchester International Festival, National Theatre of Wales, amongst many others, but also uh, was chair of uh, Bradford's winning bid to be City of Culture in 2025, a ray of light in these troubled times, one of the most exciting pieces of news we've heard in my company for the Yonks, anyway. Uh, we've also got um, Armstrong Yakubu, who's uh, a, um, a director at... Um, uh, Norman Foster Architects, 
uh, and uh, so basically representing one of the probably the best known architectural firm in the world, known for its iconic buildings, but also increasingly, like a lot of architectural practices, responsible for designing uh, huge chunks of cities, huge, huge areas. And I think Armstrong's got some really interesting thoughts to share with us about uh, urban design, basically. Uh, Harriet Wenberg is here for uh, uh, as the director of Interbau. Interbau is an organization under the patronage of um, HRH Prince of Wales uh, that represents over 9,000 practitioners working in the field of urbanism, architecture and development. So it's going to be very interesting to uh, hear her perspective as well. But I'm actually going to start uh, uh, with uh, Sunda Katwala, who's going to provide us with a bit of context. Uh, many of us will know Sunda from previously in his days as director of the Fabian Society. But these days with British Future, the think tank, uh, he's one of the sort of leading uh, proponents of, of or, or he's leading the discussion in the UK about uh, our identity or our sense of identity. Uh, and Sunder, I wanted you um, as a sort of starting gambit for this discussion to talk a little bit about the work you've been doing over the last few years around Britain and its sense of identity, talking to thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people around our country. And I wanted you to start answer a very simple question, which is why is it that it's more important than ever to design our cities around diversity? Well, I think, thanks very much for the invitation, the question. Why it's important is we live in a more anxious, more fragmented, more divided society than any of us want to be the case. Um, not as divided as we sometimes tell ourselves or that our newspapers might tell ourselves, but more divided than it, than it should be. Um, we also live in an incredibly individualistic society, and I'm not giving up the benefits of that, nor any of you, in terms of the, you know, the choice that we've got on our phones, on our computers, to choose to, to curate our own content. So there are massive gains there, but we all feel we want to do things together. And in an individualistic society like this, we're going to have to choose to do things together. Nobody's going to conscript us to do it. Um, and so we'd all like to do that a bit more. We feel a sense of loss about that, but it doesn't always happen. Um, why is that? Um, the choices we make are shaped by many factors um, about the world we we live in. You know what what the schools are like, where how we travel to work, who we meet, and so on. And so and so we can we can make choices, but they might it might be harder or easier. What I'd say from the research we've done with the public talking about this, there's a real appetite. There isn't necessarily a knowledge of the language of cohesion or interculturalism or you know integration or whatever we're going to use but there's a real interest in how we live well together and that it's our interest and responsibility to do that well and there's a real common sense consensus out there about the things that really help and really matter lots of people have different views but three things are absolutely foundational if we all speak the same language we might speak many languages but if we speak the same language in a place as well that will help um, and if we don't, it will be harder. If we have schools that are mixed and where people have contact across difference, that will be a good starting point. And if we don't, it will make it harder. And if we have places that we meet and mix with people who are different from us, it will help. And if those places don't exist for young people or older people or for everybody, it will be harder. And those are very common sense points. So that shows us that the question you've got today of how do we design it intentionally matters because the invitation to intercultural dialogue will always appeal most to people who have a lot of contact 
and really need the dialogue less than the people who won't be attracted. Social connection, social contact, social confidence, it will accrue to the people and places that have already got it if you leave it to your own devices. The question you're asking today, how do we design it to spread that out? That is the key question to ask. Okay. Um, let's hold, so school languages, schools, but let's really hold on to that interesting phrase. And I know that's a sort of a, a phrase that's come out of your research, places where people meet and mix, meeting and mixing, people meeting and mixing. That's a hugely important sort of central idea here. I want to come on to you now, Shanaz, and I'm going to ask you in a bit more detail later on about the amazing things you've, you're planning for Bradford City of Culture. But the first thing, just to sort of set a bit of context, just tell us a little bit about, about the work you've done in Bradford in preparation and about Bradford as a city, because I think it's a sort of exemplar uh, of, you know, diversity. Well, thank you for that introduction, uh, Sundar, and thank you for that question, Paul. So to give um, uh, everyone on the call today a, a context of Bradford, um, we... We won, I believe, we won the designation before because we chose to imagine a different way of being and a different way of um, a kind of existing. Bradford is a, a district-wide bid. So we won not just for the city, but for the district. And that's 542,000 citizens across the district. In 2025, 50% of that population will be non-white. Um, so that's quite a significant um, a piece of information. It's also the youngest city in the UK. And again, in 2025, 30,000 of our young people will turn 18. Again, a not insignificant piece of information. For those people who know Bradford, uh, or no, let me rephrase that. For those people who know of Bradford, you probably hear a certain narrative, a certain rhetoric. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's kind of a no-go area. It's a place where, um, you know, it's got a lot of kind of intercultural, inter-community kind of, you know, kind of tensions. Um, it's so not that city. It's so not that place. Riots took place in Bradford over three days in 2001. 20 years later, that still feels like that is the rhetoric, that is the narrative that is being pushed about this extraordinary, diverse, rich, imagin imaginative district. What we have done, and, and kind of over the last 20 years, we have consolidated in that bid. So what's been happening in the district, uh, kind of finding our voice, finding our narrative, finding our own ways of doing things if we're not you know if we're not gonna have you know see that investment coming into the district we're gonna find ways of creating that that, that those kind of intercultural dialogues we're gonna make those spaces for ourselves Bradford has a very social progressive history that's very much in our DNA so that is absolutely what the last 20 years have been about our bid and what we've been trying to do with the bid is give ourselves that um, opportunity to say to we have reimagined we know who we are we know what we're doing and we know it's the future for the UK there's a, a young woman called Ikra whose quote led the bid um, and her quote is I come from hope I come from Bradford and when we think about hope, hope in, it enables you to make quite radical, quite imaginative, inventive change. If you don't have hope, you're going to despair. And despair isn't where change and transformation happens. Okay, that's interesting. I'll, as I say, I'll come back and ask you a little bit about the how uh, in the next sort of round of questions. But in the meantime, Harriet, lovely to see you. Thank you for joining us. 
Now, your organization uh, is based on philosophy of drawing on sort of traditional thinking and traditional skills. Uh, but one of the things I noticed when I was reading your charter is that you put a lot of emphasis on the idea of kind of identity, local identity, local character. How does that sort of thinking match up with the discussion today around diversity and the fact that we are living in this kind of increasingly culturally diverse uh, world? Thank you, Paul. No, good question. And very nice to be part of this conversation with everyone. Um, in thinking and preparing for this talk, I that precise point from our charter was very much in mind that when talking about how traditions allow people to retain an identity sort of with changes and forces like globalization being the um, seen by some as sort of a homogenizing force, even with all the extreme good benefits that come with it. Um, so there is a specificity to traditional architecture um, that often does make the specific identity of a place. And that's for you know, the very natural reasons of using materials that have come from the local area, using uh, knowledge and skills of how to put those together, making adaptations to climate, to context, etc. Um, so there is a specificity that then would seem like it could be something that is exclusive, that's very particular to, um, to one set of people and not to another. And I mean, of course, there are elements of truth to that, but um, what traditional architecture, I think, and building and urbanism and all their forms are able to do um, is also is to create uh, or to, to draw on also just a, a scale of building and to create spaces that are sort of approachable and relatable at more of a, of a human scale. So meaning that uh, they can be very specific to place, they can speak to the identity of a particular place and particular people in it. Um, but when they're working at their best, um, they have a, a, a relatable and an approachable scale and feel to them um, that isn't exclusive to anyone. That should mean that anyone would be able to be in that space within the buildings or in the spaces that are left between the buildings, more the public realm, and to feel part of it and to feel um, to feel at ease, I suppose, or onto a better way of putting it. Okay, I think I think that idea of human scale and relatability. I think that's another idea which we need to uh, come back to in a very, very important principle. So moving on to you, Armstrong, lovely to see you. Um, from your point of view as an architect and urban designer, obviously Harriet's talked about uh, her organisation which represents architects and urban designers. I mean, obviously diversity is a key principle in any form of urban design and placemaking, but what about cultural diversity? What about intercultural understanding and intercultural encounters? How important is that as a principle in, in your work? Um, um, thanks, uh, really quite, really quite an honor to be here and having this discussion. Um, the first thing I was gonna say really was that, um, is that architecture is about people first and it's the buildings come afterwards. So that's a very important point I would like to raise first of all. And by its very def definition then has to be an inclusive profession designing for all people. And how can this be achieved? Um, you know, we ask ourselves, and the only way I think it can be achieved in a really, in a truly meaningful way is to, um, is for the profession itself or a start to be enriched in a very diverse and open environment. So when we talk about designing for all people, wouldn't it be amazing? In London, obviously we have the opportunity to have all kinds of people within reach of who we can capture as um, professionals. Wouldn't it be amazing if what we had our teams um, listening to all voices and having people within the teams who come from all walks of life, all cultures, and also interdisciplinary as well. So not just architects, but also talking to and listening 
to people beyond that, people who are placemakers, people who are environmentalists, you know, bring all of those into the conversation. And in that way, I think, although it's quite a difficult ask, you know, to design for all, it allows us to begin to think about what it really means to design with the public and people at the heart of it. And I think that is, I think for us, for me anyway, um, how we can begin to address many of the issues that have been raised here today, because by having that diversity within the design field, you will have those voices really input into how places can really be significantly accessible really to everyone. So that will be my starting point, I suppose, as the discussion starts. Um, and then I think I spoke to you about it. And then beyond that, begin to, because what happens is that um, we all think about the places we love. And it's very rare for us to think about buildings. You always, you always say it's Oxford Street if you're in London, it's going to be Trafalgar Square, Hyde Park Corner if you're in New York. It'll be so it's always these sort of spaces where it's not really about buildings, where somehow the spaces have been able to capture um, places where people like to meet and, and congregate. So that'll be my starting point. Okay. So uh, I think someone once famously said, diversity is a fact, inclusion is a choice. Uh, and that goes, that speaks to what Sundar just said about, you know, having intention, you know, designing with diversity as an intention, you know, intentionally to support and foster diversity. Um, we've already started talking about how, and one of the things I've asked our uh, speakers to do today is, is the, when they're answering their questions, just to think a little bit about examples of uh, what they consider to be successful buildings or successful places, and then places that are a bit less successful. And I want to go to you, Harriet, as somebody who works you know, very closely with uh, design professionals in this in this area. Do you think, just picking up on what Armstrong said, do you think that the professional side of this, you know, the planning and architecture design professions, do you think um, there's, how do you think we're doing in terms of inclusive practice, not just in terms of the profession itself, but involving as wide a range of local people as possible in the design process. I mean, wh where do you think we are on that kind of a journey? Big question, I know, but just to get the sense from your perspective. No, a good one. Um, well, probably reasonably early on that journey. I mean, I think it it's within my working living memory that localism and local really came into um, parlance within the design professions in in the UK in a meaningful way and that uh, community consultation became not just a phrase that was used a lot, it actually became something that really needed to be done. Um, I think it's also, there are often words that are used even if, even if they're not meaningfully done and nobody's also got the perfect recipe for how to do it in a perfect way. Because you then also find that uh, people who are more likely to come forward to and express a, a view um, how do you find the ones that are less likely to come forward to express you who also need to be well served by the place that's going to come out of it. Um, so it's probably the answer, you know, honestly, if we were having this conversation in 10 years time, might end up saying exactly the same thing, that we're probably still pretty early on that journey, because maybe it should always feel that way, that there's more to be done and better to be done to feel that people are really being included and, and represented as societies shift and change and the buildings around us kind of do too, to need to keep pace with what we need from them, but also, you know, pressingly right now, what the what the environment more widely, you know, thinking of um, uh, climate crisis sort of on us as well, but that it's it's all the, the different sort of factors at the moment that will come into to those sorts of conversations. So I think I would say now, and probably always that there's 
there will be a lot more to be done to make it happening more meaningfully than otherwise. But I think it's it's something that actually happens now, whereas not all that long ago it it uh, it happened an awful lot less, or not by you know it wasn't built in as part of the process. And this is quite a UK focused conversation. I mean, I mean, is there any way of sort of assessing or judging how the UK is doing in relation to the many other countries that you you work across? Well, I guess, I mean, there are some examples of where systems would be a bit more informal, maybe where actually um, involvement of communities that are going to be impacted, then if done well, because it's not actually a government effort or it's not a planning system effort, end up being far more meaningful because it is, it's more of a grassroots measure. So we've done quite a lot of work in Pakistan and thinking of a um, an eco street that was developed really recently uh, that had been sort of choked with traffic. It had had a lot of incursions of shop fronts having been built out um, further into the street. These were you know, historic buildings kind of behind, um, but an effort through a couple of charities that, that teamed up and met with all the shopkeepers, met with lots of people that used the street for shopping and otherwise, um, and just found that actually everybody was going to stand to benefit if the whole feel of the street was uplifted. So um, it's now, it was, it, it ended up being led that effort entirely by the shopkeepers. Uh, it's now closed to traffic. They've planted um, sort of community gardens down the center. Uh, they had an effort to have a, a lot of um, women who live uh, sort of 60 kilometers outside of Karachi to make terracotta cobbles to, to pave the street. They sort of brought the mean temperature on that street down by sort of in some cases a degree or a little bit more. Um, and that was all done completely informally. That didn't have the planning system involved in it at all um, and really did involve the people that are always on that street as well as the, the, the users that come to it to, to shop, speaking to them. Um, yeah. So it's the full range of examples of where there's a lot of process and a lot of um, uh, planning authority that doesn't yet really have the community aspect that have baked into it in a meaningful way all the way in our network to where those processes don't really exist, but it's happening in, in very meaningful ways just because it's being left to the grassroots. Right. It's quite, it's interesting what you said there with the Pakistan example, because uh, in my, uh, in, in the Wealth Studies Culture Forum, the network that I, I run, um, there's always an interesting conversation between uh, the cities, in the richer countries, uh, and the cities in the poorer countries where you have what is politely known as unplanned settlements, or as what we used to call slums. You know, it's a rude word, isn't it? Or favelas. And there's a really interesting conversation about, you know, how do you think about culture? You know, when you're talking about something that's essentially unplanned, there's so little intervention from the state or from external agencies. And actually, there's a huge amount to learn from the way uh, things have happened in those unplanned, informal um, urban settlements. There's a huge, amount, a huge amount that can be learned by uh, the developing world from that, I think. But that's probably a different subject. Um, Sundar, just to move, uh, just to remind uh, our, our gathered audience, by the way, we've got about, I think we've got five questions already, but you can put questions into the Q&A and I'll come and I'll come around to those uh, and address those across our speakers in about uh, 15 minutes, but please feel free to, to add more questions. In, in your work, when you talk to people about, you know, these places to, to meet and mix, is there a sense of frustration about there not being enough of those kinds of places, about the sorts of urban environments people live in and indeed people's agency or ability to influence the sort of places they, they live in. Is that something that comes across strongly in, in your work? There's a frustration and a sense of loss, particularly around 
places for young people, um, you know, perhaps just after school age, that that, that seems to be missing. Um, there's an element of nostalgia about that. I don't know, you know, how accurate the nostalgia is, but it's felt by a lot of people that there were, that there were spaces. I suppose this would be non-commercial space as well that, that existed and now doesn't exist, you know, youth clubs or sports clubs or whatever it whatever it was that that's harder that's harder to find and i think i think what comes out of this conversation is yeah a million choices that are being made all tilting nudging us in a good direction or a worse direction but how we how we use the big moments of transition in society becomes really important we probably made a lot of mistakes about this say in in the cities of britain the cities of england you know post-war when big choices were being made, but you know what Birmingham felt like if you had a car or didn't have a car. Fifteen years later, you know it was it was just inaccessible. The way the way our the way our cities have sort of reimagined themselves in the inner cities in Birmingham, Manchester is probably much more on a human scale because there's a there's a bit of a culture shift. But our our town and city high streets will have to reimagine themselves again. They'll be doing different things in the future than in the past. And, you know, we could just, you know, have what you have in rich societies, which is, you know, unplanned development because of who just decides to do what, or you could have a bit of a strategy, a bit of a nudge about what you want to happen. What is the mix of retail and entertainment, residential and so on that you're trying to get? And do you do, do you design in, do you, does this have enough value? Um, and how do you protect the value it does have for people? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I'm following the debate about, you know, the future of high streets in the UK, because I think that is probably you know, one of the big, single biggest sort of urban issues in the UK. And, you know, when you think, uh, you know, you have, I have a sort of idealistic notion of high streets as sort of civic spaces and diversity spaces. When you actually look at the sad facts, you know, what, what happened to our high streets over the last 30, 40 years is they became actually very kind of monocultural and very non-diverse. And so I think uh, the concept of reintroducing diversity into that uh, into that sort of planning process is really important, which brings me on to Shanaz. Um, talk to me a little bit about the role that, I mean, you, you, you're you a cultural producer and artist. A lot of your work is actually site-specific. Um, uh, a lot of the stuff you do doesn't require buildings or big institutions. It's sort of out there. But what, what what's your take in, on terms of the role of culture and arts in in creating this more uh, this conversation, if you like, between professionals, local communities, all the other sort of actors at play. What's what's your experience of that? Any any top tips on that? Well, I think I think it's really interesting listening to actually listening to Harriet and Sunda both on the the what the, the points that they made in their their recent comments and Harriet described that street in Karachi, and I having been to Karachi a couple of times, it's not a city that you can. You can shift quickly, but that you can take small places and like that street and make something happen because of its more informal, should we say, planning structures in some areas of it, not all areas of it. And as you say, unplanned dwellings, which kind of brings me to Bradford, a city that's small enough and a district that's small enough where you can actually innovate. You can try ideas out. There's a willingness here that in to kind of say, let's see what happens with this. Let's change it. Our high street, Bradford High Street, doesn't look like other high streets in other cities in the UK. You know, that investment just hasn't been here. But then that gives us an opportunity, actually, to kind of create a, a, a blueprint for a high street that is for the future. You, you know, you talked about the high street as a civic space, most civic spaces, if I think about it, you know, honestly, aren't 
really spaces that encourage culture, cultural debate, intercultural conversation, that encourage the diverse communities and make them feel like those spaces are theirs. The Houses of Parliament is a civic, is a civic space, but how many people voting members of the public actually would go there and see it as a space that they feel like they can visit? You know, Bradford City Centre is actually, there's a project going on right now in Bradford, um, the City Hall. Three artists are in residence in how can you make this into an open, welcome space that in, asks everybody and says, this is yours. Civic means it is yours. So we're really, really ex kind of experimenting and beginning to play, actually. We're, I, we're at the start of it. You know, we're at the start of that journey. We've put culture at the heart of a 10-year plan. And people sit in the middle of that. The reason why I started making site-specific work is because I didn't feel like venues, arts venues, were a space for me. You know, I'm somebody who's done, you know, I've done my art degree. I've been through the institutes. I know the institutes. I know the venues. I feel very comfortable in them. But I didn't think as an artist when I started that those spaces were going to be able to give me what I would need as an artist. So I thought I'm going to be site-specific. Made it a lot harder, I have to say. So a lot more difficult to kind of become, well, you know, when I started, especially, I think it's become much more, um, um, it's a place where all artists want to go now and they want to play. And when you want to kind of engage with audiences, but I also saw arts venues as a space that are a physical barrier to audiences who are not of a middle class or kind of a white background or who feel like, again, that those spaces are for them. So I thought I've got to take the work to where the audiences are. So it's their streets, it's their community centres, it's their hills, it's the mills, you know, if I'm thinking about Bradford. Um, and you have to... If you do that, my theory always is and has been, if you do that and you introduce them to it like that, you kind of bring them into the institutions, you bring them into the venues and they'll follow the art then rather than we have to go to the venues. Yeah. And that's what we've been trying to do in Bradford. And that's why Bradford is a place where a lot of site-specific work has been growing. We've got a theatre company called Commonwealth. All right. these shows are either boxing rink or somebody's house or car parks with the recent show, Piece of Phobia. So designing for diversity isn't just about uh, thinking about urban design or physical design. It's all about, it's about the content and about where that happens and about what's the relationship between content and, and buildings as well. But are, in terms of the, these three artists who are think, you know, thinking through, uh, you know, uh, how to use a town hall, I think you said in Bradford, what what sort what sort of design specific approaches could you use to make our buildings and our civic spaces and our town centres more more diverse and more accessible and more more better places to mix and meet? Well, when I was thinking, I was thinking you know, about this talk this evening. I, I was trying to think of a civic space that I thought was actually that. Yeah, I can't really think of one, really. That's a challenge to my colleagues on this call as well, because is there a civic space that we would think? I'm, you know, Manchester Art Gallery, there's a curator there who always talks about that the, the, our art galleries are publicly funded. Any, anything, any space that is publicly funded, government central funded, is a civic space, therefore. But which yeah. one is, is truly, you know, a, a space that is designed for diversity? And by that, we mean an intercultural conversation. 
Um, you talked about, interestingly, about high streets, and it really made me think about the Broadway Centre in Bradford. And you talked about the homogenizing and, and the kind of the very monoculture of high streets. And Broadway looks like every other shopping centre, has all the shops, every other shopping centre that has in any Western city, in actually in any contemporary city in the, in the world, actually. There is a homogenization across all cities, I think, when it comes to high streets. But it has one shop in it called Khadiz, which is born and, you know, born and developed in Karachi, in Pakistan, and is now across the world. The demographic of the people who go to that shop shifted the offer of the other shops that were in that building. Right. So it comes, it really does come back to what are the needs of the people? What are they looking for? What are they wanting? Yeah, uses. So uh, I'm going to ask um, Harriet and Sunder to think of a really brilliant civic space that works as a place of intercultural connection in a minute, but I wanted to go to Armstrong. Um, Armstrong, just, it'd be interesting just to talk from your experience of, of trying to design, you know, kind of relatively large urban areas, particularly you were talking to me very interesting about what you've been doing in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, like Bradford, a sort of a hugely diverse uh, place with a sort of complex uh, history. Uh, what's, what are the key things that, that need to happen for, for that kind of uh, planning to take place? I mean, you've talked about inclusion, obviously, but what are the key things with you as a as an urban designer, what, what, what are the, what's the secret to success in changing these kinds of spaces to be much more welcoming, open and intercultural? Yes, um, I'll just um, give a very brief history about the site itself in Washington, D.C. I mean, downtown Washington, D.C. got um, what's called white flight. After the race riots of 1968, there was a real exodus from the city and uh, there was river riots. A lot of buildings got burned down. And over a period of time, this, this part of inner city in Washington became quite run down. Um, there was Chinatown that was still thriving, but it really began, to, and the city began to think about how could they begin to regenerate the central part of, and the first thing they thought was, let's build a convention center. But the convention center actually made matters worse. So they actually changed their minds and decided to demolish the, the convention center and hold a competition saying, what can we really do in this sort of downtown um, and we looked at it and we realized that a lot of law firms had moved in. So it become a, a monoculture. It become almost all entirely offices. So it didn't have a life really. People came in in the morning and they left in the evening. No one actually lived there. So we decided that perhaps what it needed was that it needed to be a more mixed use community. And we did a lot of historical data. Um, just going back a little bit, we also pulled in the, 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 the indigenous people of Washington, D.C. brought them into the conversation. People who had lived there for generations and people whose lives were invested in it to begin to really try and find out what it is they wanted from this part of the city. And like I said, it's not really about the buildings. We talked about mixed-use communities. So people have offices, residences, obviously shops and restaurants and so on. But at the end of the day, it wasn't really about the buildings or the architecture. It was how do we create a part of this city, which is welcoming for all. And having all those discussions, um, all kinds of things came as people thought it needed a new library perhaps. And but Washington has a lot of libraries um, and it's got one very major library. Some people thought actually it needs a new park. And we said, no, it doesn't. Washington has some of the most amazing parks. So we thought actually what you really need really is just 
like we just spoke about streets, alleyways, and squares that are totally inclusive for all. And we push this idea that we, the buildings themselves were not that important, but the spaces between the buildings were perhaps the most important things. And then taking on board pure access and what that means, it means, you know, environmentally, the spaces between the buildings are, are ideal in terms of wind, in terms of solar access, in terms of the scale, which is quite an important thing because scale can very often put into many people as well. So trying all these different parameters with the community at the heart of it, began to design uh, spaces between the buildings for people to occupy. In a way, in our mind, we thought anyone could design the buildings. In a funny sort of way, the buildings might have been the easier thing. There will be residences, there will be offices, but in many ways, this can be quite private. So a lot of the emphasis was saying, if the public realm had all the care in the world put in it, it was totally accessible. Everyone could use it and it wasn't gated and it literally felt like a part of the city. And one of the biggest points we made was actually when dealing with the landscape, um, the landscape, one of the, one of the, not actually the landscape architect, but somebody outside it thought perhaps if the way it looks, so if you came along to Washington DC after it was completed, you will not be aware that there'd been a new interjection to the city. And right. all that actually ended up developing a 12 acre site, which I can honestly say today, albeit it has private bids, has a public realm that is truly unique to, to being used by everyone and within yeah. the city. And it attracts everyone within the city. There's Christmas trees now located in the site so that people actually enjoy the celebrations at Yuletide. So it's a real, and it was, it was a, for me, it was a real experience to negate the buildings in a way and just park them on one side and really deal with the public Interesting. realm. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think uh, we haven't got time to explore it anymore now, but I think <clears throat> one of the things that's so important in this conversation is, you know, we tend to think of uh, design and architecture and, you know, placemaking as, as a sort of fairly simple linear process. But of course, as your response there shows, it just involves so many different facets. And I imagine that you worked with dozens and dozens of different kinds of groups and other professionals as well. So it's, 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 a, it's a big, important, complex job. Um, I'm going to take um, Shanaz's challenge over to you, Harriet. I've given you a bit of time to think about it. Have you got any, in terms of an exemplar of the future, have you, can you think of anywhere, a place that, uh, that you might call a civic or a public place that's designed for diversity in a way that's kind of exciting, successful, follows these principles we've been talking about? Uh, I can, and not just, I've had time just now, but was listening to Armstrong, but also I did my homework and I was thinking before even the session started. Uh, I'm going to be very brief, but I'm going to give um, three that are all in... London, and they all also relate to the space left behind by buildings, but also where the, the buildings are successful. So I think you don't typically manage to have a successful space left behind between buildings if the buildings aren't working right for where they are. Um, so the first two are related, and that's um, the courtyard at Somerset House and Granary Square up in King's Cross. For anybody that hasn't been to those two, Somerset House is a courtyard enclosed by the building that has uh, art galleries, offices, cafes and restaurants and so on in it. It's a very imposing classical building that's been there since the, the later 18th century. Um, but the courtyard uh, about 20 years ago, I think or so, um, there was a, a sort of overhaul project that turned it from being a car park 
into a really public space that has fountains built into the ground. It also does cinema screenings and has music concerts that are open to absolutely anybody. And that, as well as Granary Square up near King's Cross, also has fountains that jet out of the out of the paving stones. And what any Londoner will know is that that becomes the nearest thing to a beach, really, that the city has on warm days, even not particularly warm days, is children of all ages sort of gathering around with families from uh, really all over London locally and further afield, playing in the fountains together in a completely free, open and easy, accessible way. And water sometimes kind of has that ability just to bring people together and, and um, have a sense of kind of shared, well, fun, I guess, as well as being a feature. Um, and the third, just very briefly, is Arnold Circus, which is in Shoreditch in London. And that's uh, close to the site of where the first um, really affordable housing was built, I think in the UK, but certainly in London. And this is a space left behind by mansion block development of, of flats that was it's a circus, that's a circle. And really the only thing that was done there that is simple and brilliant was that some construction spoils, so just a whole lot of dirt essentially was piled in the center in that round space to build up a mound um, that was then landscaped. So there are now some mature trees because it's been going now for um, you know well over a century and more. Um, and then it's just a, at the top, there's a bandstand in the center. So there's shelter if it's bad weather. And then you can walk the perimeter of the circle at a few different levels, but it just means that you feel it's a quiet circus for traffic anyway, but you really are coming into a public space for anyone and actually ascending a set of, of steps or coming up ramp into it off and away from the street. And it's incredibly simple. It's just the round space left behind by buildings and they used some of the construction spoil to build it up as a mound. Great. That's interesting. I, I've been, obviously with, with my job, I've been, I've followed the uh, progress of King's Cross over the last 25 years. And I think one of the secrets to success, if you can call it success there, is, is not over planning not yeah. over master planning, not too much top down, letting it, you know, having it loosened a bit of a bit of room for serendipity and creativity. What about you, Sunder? Have you got, have you got a good example for us? I was reminded by the fountains that, I mean, Bradford has done that uh, for very successfully in creating a, a shared space, you know, in a city where people perhaps didn't feel they knew whether they shared spaces and it's, you know, by attracting families and children that works very well. But I think my example would have been, um, it's quite a, quite a grand building, but the new, the new Birmingham Central Library, which is one of the biggest cultural space in Birmingham is part of a set of different projects that kind of connect up spaces and open up spaces I think in a in a city where space has felt kind of closed down and quite and quite tight so by doing it with that level of ambition and scale it's probably one of the largest public spaces in Europe now and and just a very you know you know the modern and the traditional playing off each other architecturally and visually in a way that sort of has reclaimed the spaces does, does seem to me at an ambitious level you know quite quite interesting as to as to how to remake the very center of a city in a way that says i think this is for everyone that's very clearly a message that is that is sent there yeah we should definitely add libraries to your list you said schools i think we should have libraries there as well um, I, I've, I've, we've got a few questions coming through and i'm going to sort of paraphrase, paraphrase those um in a minute, but there's uh, there's a question I just want to ask Shanaz because I just think we I just want to hear it. I think we should hear about it. One of the things I know about your bid and the plans you've got for Bradford is that you're you're trying to you're trying to basically make a you're trying to change the master plan for the city, aren't you? You're, in other words, you're trying to kind of operate at the level of a sort of a systematic plan for the overall city rather than individual projects or individual neighbourhoods. 
just briefly in a minute or so, can you just tell us how you think, how you're doing that? Because I think that's fascinating because I'm, I'm a big believer that you've got to work at that kind of systemic level. Well, you, it, it's interesting the the responses that both Harriet and Sunder gave there because it just and and it it just really made me think of our master plan actually and the fact that um, we are such a diverse city that there's nowhere in the city that you can create any intervention where you are not going to have some kind of intercultural conversation or some kind of intercultural meeting. Sometimes it'll be positive. Sometimes it might have tension. So where intentionally and we started this whole conversation I think about intention so we are intentionally looking at our buildings that already exist our historical buildings the empty mills we've got so many mills in our district because of our history that and, and where they are sited where they are located our mills are normally located where all the mill workers used to live so that is quite a lot of diverse communities now live there so we are thinking about how to best you know, work with those spaces, how to best bring them back to life, revitalize them. So we, A, we don't lose that architectural history, but also we absolutely embed some of the most inventive, innovative change within those communities. We're looking at what those communities need. We're working with those communities to say, okay, what is what do you think you need? What does the council, what do we need to do as those that are making decisions in to impact and give you what you need but also how do we kind of add to that and think well this is what you think you need we're going to deliver to that but this is what else we're going to give you mm -hmm. we're putting we're bringing culture with that throughout that our creative people and places the way it's working kind of hyper local local and hyper local in order to kind of begin to raise those voices so the impact on that master plan that we're trying to kind of create for the city. Sunday, you mentioned, we call it the mirror pool, by the way. It's our, it's our concert space, it's our play space, it's our beach, it's our promenade, it's all of those things. And if you, if kind of creating that might, it, it's big, it's not exactly small, it's four, four and a half thousand square meters. It's a circle, but it's a square. Um, so it's not small, but it's also small in, in when it comes to kind of think about how do we grow what we've done there? So it impacts across the city and we're using that as our starting point. We've got um, a new development happening in the city of the of, mar of uh, our market. So we're taking them from the where they were and moving them to a different site. But we're also looking at the green spaces in our city. I don't know how many of you will know, but where the Broadway is now, it was meant to be twice that footprint. And we, it, there was a hole in Bradford just before the recession. And that hole was visibly there in that city until somebody had the idea to fill it and create a green space. That green space has had an impact on the psyche of the development for our city. So something that was a problem flipped, made into a solution that we didn't know we were going to be able to use. Right. Okay. Um I think you've partly answered, I'm just moving over to the sort of questions that have come in, and I think we've got time for maybe two or three, but I think you've partly answered one of the questions which came in, which was basically says that, you know, the 2012 Olympics were sort of won uh, around the concept of diversity, and we always remember those brilliant ceremonies, uh, but the, 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 the question that feels as though even though diversity was um, kind of used for that, it wasn't really celebrated in the legacy of 2012. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of answering the question for you in the sense of I'm saying that 
working at the level of the master plan and also on individual projects is one way of ensuring that, that there's a legacy beyond just the the event itself. But would you like to just make a 30 second comment on that at all? I'll try and bring this in a 30 second. Um, you talk about legacy. Um, we wouldn't have been won the bid if we hadn't put legacy right at the beginning. Legacy is not an afterthought for us. It's actually at the forefront. When you are going to be a city that is over 50% non-white demographic in 2025, your responsibility and your intention from the actual very beginning should be about creating opportunity, uh, creating ownership, and creating roots for people from all these diverse communities, and I'm talking race and socioeconomic, but because in 2012, it wasn't just diverse communities, racially diverse, but socioeconomically diverse. That's the, that's the part built on the foundation of our bid. Right, okay. That's, that's, that's a good short answer. Well done, 30 seconds. Now I've got a question that's come in from somebody. That, uh, you're talking about cities, our question says, which is understandable, although the actual title of this talk is Cities and Communities. Um, She's saying, I live in a British village, which is changing quickly with new communities joining us. Uh, how can we make them know that they're welcome? So you know, I think this conversation, you know, we do tend to sort of talk about cities exclusively, but, but Sundar, is there a difference of attitude depending on whether you're in a city or a town or a village? What, what's, what, what's your thoughts on that question? Yeah, it's an incredibly important question. And it's, it's why, in a way, the local and hyper-local are not enough because people have a lot more confidence about their local experience than they do about the state of the nation. And so the, the anxiety about difference is sometimes four or five or six miles across the city. It's often 15 miles up the road um, where you, you might have the visibility of change, but you don't have the contact with it. You might be in Yorkshire outside looking in at Bradford saying, I don't know what's going on, but that will make me less likely to go. And so if you don't, if you don't bridge uh, and link, and invite people in and make sure people connect out, then, then it's not enough. We, we see a rising diversity everywhere. We've got increasingly diverse suburbs. Um, we'll, we'll see a sort of effect and so on. And that means that in a way our maybe excessively sort of focus on schools in highly diverse areas, it, that's where it's going well. We actually need to bridge to the parents and the grandparents of the school children, but to bridge 20 miles up the road is actually incredibly important. And that's why the really big moments, whether they're Jubilees or World Cups or Cities of Cultures, are really important because I think they give you a reach, they give you a communication mm -hmm. of what you're doing, but actually an opportunity to invite people. It'd be great for schools to be doing that all the time or for business doing all that time, using the major moments to create the connection and contact that wouldn't happen by itself is incredibly important if you're most interested in the people who are least likely to volunteer to have the contact normally. Okay, great. So um, we've got time. I've, I've slightly, I uh, haven't organised this well enough to answer all these questions. There are some really interesting comments coming in, and I'm, I'm sort of going to group two or three of them together and turn it into a question to finish off to uh, Harriet and Armstrong. Uh, essentially, just to sort of put in a nutshell, uh, and particularly there's one questioner who's, who's drawing on the, the experience of Southall, because she's reminded of Southall from what uh, Shannon's been saying about Bradford, which is that a lot of the examples we've talked about seem to involve quite high-end sort of retail development. They're kind of fairly commercially driven or dri driven by sort of those kind of mi that mixed-use model, which is basically retail and uh, and sort of expensive flats, as, as my colleague always says to me. Um, and uh, the, our, our questioner talks about Southall and says that there are similar things happening in Southall. It's at risk of homogenization and gentrification. And the question is, how do we centralize both the diverse communities and everyday spaces in any future developments 
even though they might not be the most profitable or fashionable? It's a very big question, isn't it? How do we think Armstrong's partly answered it talking about his DC project, but that's it. Let me just finish and go to Harriet first and Armstrong, which is how can we make sure, how can we use our, how can we basically use the planning system, think about, uh, you know, the inclusive approaches we're talking about to make sure that there is this balance between, you know, the investment coming in and inclusion and uh, everyday spaces, as our questioner rather nicely puts it. Mm -hmm. um, no, really good and really important question. I think anybody who's lived in London or any big city or even any place really for any amount of time, feeling that change is inevitable and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and gentrification certainly sweeping through parts of London often being a force that you know will will wreck the character that made that place successful in the in the in the first instance um which is which is a shame and that cycle sort of going on and on um I mean in the UK context not sure how to answer that without making it something economic which is that property prices and demand for being in London, despite the pandemic inability to work from home, uh, that's, that is what needs to be reined in, is that people will continue to, to buy where they can and then prices soar. And it means that what was there before ends up just being harder to, to, to stay. And it comes down to the cost of things. Um, so I'm sure, but then again, there's no one size fits all approach to fixing that because if there were it would mean that every place was the same and that the problems they were facing were the same so it's it's a, a lot of individual solutions that are needed to be found from reasonably local government level um, but certainly here and in London it seems that it's the it's it's prices being out of control um, that often seem to be a, a major factor in um, in changing the formation of who can be where and and the the unfairness of that okay Armstrong Final yeah, thought. thank you. Yeah, very quickly. Um, thing of, the thing I always try and ask a client, any client from the most commercial to the le le least commercial is how does the project, how does this project, we're all working together, contribute to the common good? What can we bring to this project that is actually contributing to the public realm? So yes, buildings and shopping can be quite private, can be quite selected, but if we put our heads together, I think we can always come up with ideas so that the project is not just a silo, not just a getter in a way. And how does one actually do that? And I'm yet in my, in my career of 30 plus years, met a client who hasn't welcomed this idea. So I think by pushing just a little bit, you can always contribute to the common good, even in the most hostile or commercial of situations. I think that is in a way the opt optimism as an architect that I have is that there's always gonna be the opportunity to create spaces that everyone can enjoy. So buildings just can be fortresses or silos. They have to give something back. And as designers, we've got to strive to do that. So I think that in a way is always the starting point. And if the conversation starts early enough, then there's enough investment in the process to make sure that at the end of it, there is something in development or in the project or in the piece of city or even in the village that contributes to the common good. Great. That's a fantastic optimist, optimistic note uh, to end on. I can't possibly summarise, except to say that one of the things that's been going through my mind as we've had these interesting contributions from our speakers is that in some ways we could sort of flip the title or the question of this session around and think not that we are designing for intercultural exchange, but intercultural exchange will help us design our cities and our communities better. 
Um, so uh, I'd like to thank all these fantastic speakers, Shanaz Gulzar, Sundar Katwala, Harriet Wenberg, Armstrong, Yakubu, and also to our um, listeners, our participants. Thank you very much. Penny. And I'd very much like to thank all of you as well and Paul. Um, you started by, well, Sundar started by sort of reminding us we're living in a very anxious and fragmented and divided society, but it, he was very quick to assure us it's not always as bad as we think. And I loved how you went very international. We sort of discussed Karachi and uh, Washington, D.C. and Bradford, London, Birmingham. So it's really nice to talk about the international, but also the need for the hyperlocal. Thank you. Was, I've been absolutely on my, been compelled by what you've had to say. And a bit, again, about the spaces between buildings and the joy of intentional planning and the consequences of the positive consequences of sometimes under planning. Um, and Armstrong, thank you very much for mentioning um, the common good at the end and how you ask people to contribute, because that's what we always try and get to with our participants in Aspen UK's private programme. So it was lovely to hear that. Um, Armstrong, Harriet, Shanaz, and of course, Paul, it was so wonderful to hear your expertise and your experience. Thank you so much. I loved every second of this. Thank you.